On October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted 95 big questions which he believed faced the church of his day to a local church door in Wittenberg, Germany. 500 years later, I decided to post 95 new questions, one a week, to the web, questions which I believe the church must face in the 21st century. The culture we inhabit is just like the air that we breathe. We're immersed in it, but for most of the time, we're oblivious to it, which means that we rarely stop to ask questions about it, to test it or to analyze it. Here in the West, in the 21st century, part of our cultural air is capitalism. And even though many of us do our best to resist accepting its assumptions blindly and to live counterculturally, it's all around us and we all end up taking many of its implications for granted without even recognising them. The experts have various fancy names for all of this. They call it a grand narrative, a framing script or a controlling cultural construct, but in the end it all boils down to exactly the same thing. We all live inside some sort of big cultural story that conditions the way that we think. Equally, the Apostle Paul lived inside a particular framing story. It was the cultural air that he breathed. This is what he took for granted and what sits behind everything that he had to say. But his framing story was very different from ours, which of course is why we sometimes struggle to understand him and in my view end up misrepresenting him as either owning or condoning all those exclusionary, judgmental, damnatory and segregating attitudes, the exponents of which love to claim are based on his teaching and writing. The cultural story that Paul lived in is what is known as Second Temple Judaism. It's the oxygen that he, like all other first century Jews, breathed. In a nutshell, it was built around the core belief that God, the God of all creation, had made an unbreakable promise to the people of Israel. They were loved by him and would never ever be abandoned by him. Not simply as individuals, but as a whole people. Indeed, this is what people of Jewish faith still believe. So even today, if you were try to, to try to convince an Orthodox Jew that by praying a certain prayer, she or he might be saved, they'd find your words incomprehensible. Though too polite to say it, they'd be thinking, we are saved, we are redeemed, it's already happened, and it will happen again, because we are the people who know God is a God of grace. And although by the time that Paul was born, things had gone wrong for the people of Israel, they'd been exiled into Babylonia, and then, even on their eventual return, had found themselves conquered first by the Greeks and then by the Romans, they never doubted God. They believed that in the end, through the work of a promised Messiah, their name for a liberator, God would deliver on his commitment and they would be set free from their enemies. Very briefly, that's what the term Second Temple Judaism stood for. And that's Paul's framing story. Now, back in the day, Isaiah, one of Judah's sages, had once prophesied these words. 
On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. You can find Isaiah's words in chapter 25 of the book that's now in our Old Testament. It was these words that, alongside a series of other prophecies, every second temple Jew clung to as they waited impatiently for their Messiah, their liberator, to arrive and to set them free. There's lots more to say about all of this, some of which we'll explore in weeks to come. But the key to really understanding Paul's writing is to understand that he never ever abandoned his basic Second Temple worldview. Rather, through his experience on that road to Damascus, he simply came to believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of it because he'd done exactly what Isaiah spoke of. Through Jesus, God had swallowed up death and therefore through him, the rest of the promises of Isaiah's prophecy would also be fulfilled. The sovereign Lord would wipe away the tears from all faces, all nations. For Paul, this was a revolution, the beginning of a new creation, a new liberation, not just for the Jews, but for all the people of the whole world. The creator and redeemer God of Israel could now be relied upon to put the whole world to rights, to create justice in line with his ancient promises for all people. Jesus, Paul came to believe, is the cosmic Messiah, the Messiah of the whole earth. I unpack much more about all of this in my new book, The Lost Message of Paul. But for now, I leave you with a couple of questions to think about. If it's true that this is the way that Paul understood the world, what difference do you think it makes to the core message of what we call the gospel today? And what difference should it make to the message and work of any and every local church? Have we misunderstood the Apostle Paul badly? Have we made the mistake of reading his words through our own set of assumptions? Instead, should we begin with Paul's worldview to see things the way he saw them. For instance, what if the idea that we're saved by our faith in Christ is based on a giant misunderstanding, a mistranslation of Paul's words and thinking? In my new book, The Lost Message of Paul, I issue a challenge to grapple with the task of understanding the words of Paul through his culture, rather than imposing our modern Western ideas on him. It's released on the 21st of June and you can pre-order it now through the link below.